Bible reading tonight is from Luke 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marvelled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Well, thanks for that reading, Bob. Uh, let me add my welcome to that of Stuart's. My name's Rod. If you are visiting or new, it's great to have you with us post-Christmas. And um, as you heard, we're completing this little series in Luke 1 and 2, these songs on the Christmas playlist as we come to now Simeon's song tonight. Uh, let me pray for us, ask that God will help us as we uh, come to his word, that we might um, not simply hear it, but really respond to it with our hearts, that we might live in the light of it. So please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that we can gather together tonight. Uh, we thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you for your word to us, uh, that we hear your voice as we read your scriptures, as your spirit applies it to our hearts and minds. We see its power um, to convict us and change us, to shape us. And we pray tonight that you might do that great work in us again, that you might uh, continue to challenge us afresh as we think about uh, the gift of your son and our response as we hear Simeon's response. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I and my family uh, visited the United States recently. We had a holiday and um, headed over and spent about three weeks there. And probably my highlight, and I think for some of the family as well, was going to Yosemite National Park. Um, it's about five hours drive uh, inland from uh, San Francisco and we'd hired an SUV and we'd driven out and we got pretty close. We we're about four and a half hours there. We probably had 20 or 30 minutes to go to our cabin and we rounded this bend in what is a steep windy road into the valley and suddenly we were stopped in our tracks by this huge rock and mudslide that had gone across the road. We were the first car to hit it. Thankfully, it didn't hit us if we'd been there earlier. And then we thought, well, what's going to happen now? We came to a stop and thought, well, pretty soon, hopefully, there'll be some other cars that are banked up behind us and there'll be a local that can tell us uh, what the likely weight is. You know, should we be turning around and considering going somewhere else for the night? It was getting probably to the last hour of light and we were hoping to get to our place before it was dark. Well, sure enough, some locals turned up, we had a chat, and they said, oh, no worries at all, the Caltrans guy will be here any minute. Caltrans guy was a Californian transport service, and they turn up with their giant uh, front load tractor uh, to deal with the problem. And we thought, well, maybe it will be only about 15 minutes. Uh, we could see the one in front of us was not huge. We thought probably could clear that off. What we didn't realise was there was another one about 50 metres down the road that was much larger, that had some really big rocks and a huge tree across the road. 
And so we were waiting for 90 minutes in the end, and I think the kids did pretty well. I was probably more anxious just wanting to get to our destination after all that driving. But as I looked up on the internet later, we were very fortunate. Only 12 months earlier, November 2018, there'd been some big fires at the end of their summer, August, September, had loosened all the steep hills around that. And when the rains hit in November of that year, huge rock slides at multiple points, the whole road was closed for 34 hours. So waiting an hour and a half, not too bad. But waiting is something we can struggle with these days because we live in an instant society where we're not used to exercising our patience very much. But as we come to this song of Simeon tonight, this final one in our Christmas playlist in Luke's Gospel, we find somebody who is very patient, somebody who has been waiting a long time. We learn here that Simeon has been anticipating the consolation of Israel all his life, and he is an old man. He has been waiting for decades. But what is his song about in response as he gets to meet Mary and Joseph in the temple? What is Simeon's song about? That's the question I want us to consider tonight and to think about our response to his words. Well, the first answer to that question, what is his song about, is this. It's a revelation of salvation that is for all people. A revelation of salvation which is for everybody. So notice again what's recorded in Luke, in verses 25 to 28, chapter 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. So here he is, um, a devout elderly man. He's been waiting all his life for this moment. Mary and Joseph encounter him. He's been uh, led by the Holy Spirit to come into the temple for this encounter. And they probably ran into each other either in the court of the Gentiles or in the court of the women. If you know anything about the temple design in the first century, there were four courts and not everyone could proceed to the next one. So you had the outer court of the Gentiles, then the next court of women, the court of men, and then the inner sanctuary was the court of the priests. And so with Mary present, obviously it was in one of the first two. Um, Simeon comes in contact with them and greets them. Next minute has his child in their arms and is prophetically stating these amazing things about this child. And what we need to understand, too, is that the location of this event is really important. If you were a Jew reading this account in the first century, these grand statements made about this child, it's important that they're made by this man, Simeon, in the temple courts, in the most sacred place in the nation. Here was the representation of God's presence in the temple. And here is Simeon in that special place announcing about this child that has been brought in. And look at these statements. Uh, we're not told Simeon's vocation, but he clearly speaks prophetically. And he says that he's been longing for the consolation of Israel to appear, verse 25. What does that mean? Well, he defines it for us in verse 26. He's talking about the arrival of the Lord's Messiah. That is, the promised anointed one that had been uh, looked forward to by the people of Israel for century upon century, indeed from the time of David, certainly, with the great promise in 2 Samuel 7 that there'll be a son of David in the line of David that will come and rule forever. 
And so Simeon is saying that this child that is being brought in from this couple that seem of little importance is the one. He is the anointed one. The consolation of Israel, the promised Christ or Messiah. Here is God's salvation being presented publicly. There's a public fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament prophecies about the one who is to come. And so he demonstrates his concern for the people. See, at this point, there had been silence for some 400 years. You go from the last prophet to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi and so forth, then the arrival of John the Baptist and Jesus onto the scene. There's been this silence as if God has forgotten his people. But of course, he has not. And with the arrival of John announcing now the birth of Jesus, God brings together a whole strand of promises that come to fulfillment in this helpless child. And just as in the naming of John um, in Luke 1 led to his presentation and then a prophetic utterance by Zechariah, hear the same thing with Jesus. So let's focus in on his key words from verses 29 to 32. Notice what Simeon has to say. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Verse 29 to begin with. Um, he sees himself as a watchman. He's been waiting all his life for this moment. And God having promised him and being confirmed through the Holy Spirit to him that he would not die before he saw the promised Messiah. Now with this child that he's been led to go and meet he knows that he has reached that moment. He says, well, I'm ready to die. My life task is finished at this point. I'm ready to go. Let me go in peace. It's an incredible statement, isn't it? He sees it as the final act of his life to wait all this time to see God's salvation come. In seeing Jesus, he has beheld God's prepared salvation. And notice he says it's been prepared in the sight of all the people, verse 31. So this is not hidden away. They may, he may have been born to an unimportant couple in a backwater of the Roman Empire, but now he's being presented publicly in the temple. And as we know later, he will have a public ministry for three years as he then goes about teaching as an adult and performing many miracles. And there's this sense that God is now showing his plan, the salvation is coming to fulfillment. And this picture of it being in the sight of everyone uh, is really echoing words that have already been presented by the prophet Isaiah in a number of places, but particularly Isaiah 52 verse 10. Uh, the prophet Isaiah recorded there, in the sight of all the nations, all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now Jesus is spoken of as a light in this section. And it's a theme that's already been introduced in the previous chapter, chapter one. And it's one that will keep unfolding through the gospel as Luke develops his account. And Simeon's prophecy here recalls Isaiah again. There's so much of this section that just leans back into Isaiah's prophecy. But chapter 60 of Isaiah in particular, where the light of salvation comes with revelation and glory. And the reference to a light for revelation to the Gentiles anticipates that this gospel, this good news, is for everyone, for all people. And again, that harks back to Isaiah, picking up strands that have been promised six centuries earlier. 
that God's concern was not simply for the nation of Israel, not simply for his old covenant people, but also to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, verse 6, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So these are stunning statements from a Jewish man who has lived all his life in obedience to the laws, coming to the temple, and yet here he is declaring that this child that's coming in that nobody recognizes as important is the promised Christ. Moreover, he has come in such a way that this is God's salvation that will go to the ends of the earth. Now, even though God's mighty act of salvation is for everyone, did you notice in verse 32, the second part, that Israel is not forgotten, their preeminence is not lost, they are still God's special possession. And so they, um, the Simeon writes here that um, this Christ child is also the glory of your people Israel. It highlights how God's salvation will come through an Israelite. He will be a son of David. And so Israel has an important role in God's plan still, and certainly it's the root of Jesse, David, and his line that will now come to fulfillment in the Christ, Jesus, who has been born. Now, how do we think about all of this today? I mean, these would have been really interesting events that unfold in the first century in the temple, perhaps only observed by a few, but as recorded in Luke's gospel, a stunning revelation of God. How are we to think 2,000 years later about all of this? Well, notice here, it's not just a song about Simeon's anticipation. Yeah, he's a godly guy that's been waiting for a long time. He's waiting for this moment when God will reveal his Messiah. But it's also a song about God's revelation, isn't it? That God has revealed himself and his plan finally in the gift of his son. And notice that the spirit, the source of all revelation, all testimony in the Bible, has told Simeon that this will take place, has led him into the temple and this revelation of salvation through Jesus is importantly for all people. And of course, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit will be granted to all those who trust in Christ. It will include Gentiles as well as God's old covenant people, the Jews. And so we see in this section God's heart for all people, for all nations. Now, if we follow the latest spread of the gospel in Acts, there's a gradual fulfillment of this message going out. Remember, as we get to the end of Christ's earthly ministry, he has the Great Commission, Matthew 28, the equivalent in Luke 24. And in fact, at the start of Acts, in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus sort of maps out a strategy for mission, that the gospel is going to go first to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, meaning the Gentiles as well. All people will be included in this good news that is going out. But I think as we see that unfold in the book of Acts and we see the early church and the spread of the gospel, we realize that this was quite a challenge, that this was hard work for Jewish people to think that God's message really was for the Gentiles. Even though Jesus had commanded, even though Simeon had spoken about it at Christ's birth, it was a hard thing. Remember, um, the gospel goes to the Samaritans in Acts 8, but it's only in Acts 10 that it goes to the Gentiles as the apostle Peter goes to Cornelius. And was he keen to go to Cornelius? No, not at all. You can't see that he could even enter a Gentile's house, let alone share the gospel with him. Is it really these unworthy people that need to hear the good news? 
God has to send him a vision to move him across those barriers that are in his mind to see that, yes, this one that has been born, this message of forgiveness in him must go to all people. Well, before we're too quick to judge Peter and wonder why he was so slow at that point, hasn't it been a struggle for the next 2,000 years for the church to take the gospel to all people? often because we were content for it to just reach those in our area. The church has often resisted even the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Let me give you one famous example. Uh, William Carey stands out as one of the greatest missionaries since the Apostle Paul. He was born in Northamptonshire, England. He had a wonderful heart for all nations. He was a genius when it came to languages. Um, he became a Baptist minister, and soon after he was really strongly advocating mission. In fact, he gave none of the other ministers in London any rest about, we have to send people out beyond England. We can't have the gospel just here in England and in the New World in America as they saw it. What about all those across Asia and in many other places? And so he kept going on about this before them all. And you'd think they would have been excited. He was urging them to start a mission agency that might send people out to the furthest points. But at one meeting, an old minister told him sternly, sit down, young man, and respect your elders. If God wants to save the heathen, he can do it without you. Now, thankfully, Kerry didn't listen. <laughs> he was determined. He knew that the gospel must go out. And so he founded in 1792 the Baptist Missionary society and true to his own word he didn't just want others to go he was the first missionary that went out with them the very next year 1793 and off he headed to india and he would continue until he died in 1834 you know within 50 years of his death there were over half a million christians in india the gospel had broken out of europe and the united states and many others would be reached in the aftermath well what about you do you struggle with this message going out to all people? I mean, even those that you're in contact with. So often we can put people that are in our life in the too hard basket. So we've got that relative that we once shared with who was really anti, or we've got that neighbour or friend who's really not interested at all. And so we decide that God has got no time for them and I don't either, and so I'm just not going to speak the gospel to them. I'm not going to share it. Or maybe we've got others that we cut out in one way or another. Even at times we convince ourselves that um, this person that I care for, you know, maybe God's just going to find another way for them to get into heaven, that I don't have to present Jesus to them. But of course, it's not true. They're, any person without Christ is lost. Everybody needs to hear this message of forgiveness, this Christ child that was born, the one who grew up to die on a cross and bear their sin. And so we've got to think about our commitment to sharing the good news, to declaring it as Simeon did. I was mentioning a week ago, I think there are more opportunities this time of year, especially in January, than any other time in Australia. There's more people are on holiday. More people will slow down and actually stop and have a conversation that's more than 30 seconds. They'll actually talk about the deeper questions of life. It's a great chance with family, with friends. We need to be prayerful. We need to be intentional. And so often 
we're just fearful. We're just worrying about rejection. We just don't speak when there might even be an opening. I had that same sense the other day with our family gathering with somebody in our family who's not a believer and he said something about his anxiety and stress that he's been under and I thought later, <laughs> there was an opportunity to say something about the peace that I have in Christ. You know, when Henry Ford created the Ford Motor Company in the United States, he took out what in the day was the largest insurance policy ever and made out the front page of newspapers in the United States. But a good friend of Henry Ford's was in the insurance business and he hadn't taken out the insurance policy with him. So the next time he ran into Ford, he said, why did you not take the insurance from me? And Ford said to him, well, you never asked me about it. You never spoke to me. See, we've got a mission-minded God who has a heart for all nations. And my question to you tonight is, how many friends or relatives do you have that might say of your failure to share the gospel with them, well, you never asked to share it? Let's not restrict our thinking or ignore the many around us who have yet to trust in Jesus. Let's declare this message, which truly is for all nations, for all people. And that brings me to a second answer to our question. What is Simeon's message about? Well, it's not only a message that is for all nations, for all people, but it is a message that will divide. Simeon was announcing a Messiah who would divide people. Notice what he goes on to point out in terms of the reception Jesus would get in Israel. Verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's pretty hard words, isn't it, for a young teenage mum to receive? Although the promised Messiah was the glory of the people of Israel in verse 32, many in Israel would just outright reject him. There would be those, however, who would receive Jesus, who would rise as a result of his arrival on the scene, but there would be so many who would fall. Jesus was going to produce a divided response. And the images and the uh, lines in these verses, again, are drawn from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28 in particular. And these are passages that are often picked up in the New Testament. We've seen them in 1 Peter 2 in our recent series to explain the different reactions that people have to Christ and what that tells us. Notice one example, Isaiah 8, verses 14 and 15. The prophet wrote, He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. And that phrase, a sign that will be spoken against at the end of verse 40, 34, really points to the personal rejection uh, that Jesus will face. And it grows throughout Luke's gospel, doesn't it? It starts at the very beginning with Simeon's announcement here. And as his public ministry begins, the crowds are interested for a while, but the religious leaders are anti and angry from the beginning. And it just builds and builds and builds to a crescendo, where by the end of Luke's gospel, they are screaming for his crucifixion and they are putting him on trial and then killing him. And even the crowds are yelling out to kill him. 
What a response from Israel. Well, the first part of verse 35 is a continuation of that theme. Christ's rejection by many of the Jews actually reflects the thoughts of their heart. What's happening here is the thoughts of their hearts are revealed in their response to Jesus. So many of the Jews thought that they could quite happily reject Jesus as the Messiah, but they were in right relationship with God the Father. Jesus said over and over to them, if you reject me, you have rejected the Father. If you deny me, then you have no part with God. And this was what unfolded in his ministry. And it even comes down to the family. Notice in verse 35, this ambiguous phrase about a sword piercing Mary's soul. There's been various interpretations through the last 2,000 years, and they often sort of come down to the general idea of just her sorrow at seeing his rejection and then ultimately witnessing him be crucified. But I think in the context of Luke's gospel, that's not it. It comes down to this simple idea of division that he created within Israel, but indeed even within families. Remember at the end of Luke 12, Jesus said, that I will even cause father to be against son and son against father, daughter to be against mother, daughter-in-law to be against mother-in-law. My message won't be received by everyone. There'll be those that accept me and those that reject me. And that's going to be painful. And that was painful in Jesus' own family. Mary had to witness his brothers rejecting him at the start of his public ministry, remember? Mary herself having doubts about him. Remember at one point he was in a house teaching his disciples, healing people, and they turned up outside the house and they said, your mother and brother's outside wanting to take control of you. He said, who are my mothers and brothers? Here they are in front of me, my disciples. He divided people. And this division was going to continue beyond his public ministry. It was something that his disciples would take on as the apostles went forth with the good news after his return to heaven. And of course, that's what we see in the book of Acts. Throughout Acts, sure, there are many who respond to the good news wonderfully. But there are so many that chase the apostles out of town, who try and stone Paul to death and so forth. And when you get to the very end of Acts, remember that's volume two for Luke, same author, he gets to Acts 28 And he offers this summary of a group of Israelites that had come to hear Paul. He's under house arrest. He's still declaring the good news. He's got a group of people gathered around him and he's walking them through the Old Testament saying how it all points to fulfillment in Christ. And the response to his presentation in verse 24 is this, as recorded by Luke. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. I think Luke deliberately puts that at the end of Acts 28 because he's wanting to show that this is the ongoing fulfillment of even what Simeon said in Luke chapter 2. And at the end of his discussion and presentation to his fellow countrymen, he says to them in verse 28 of Acts 28, God's salvation has now been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. It's a sad um, truth, But it's not a truth that only is reflected in the nation of Israel. It's reflected in the Gentile world as well, clearly. And so as we apply this to ourselves, we need to reflect on how Jesus continues to reveal hearts today. You know, that mixed reaction, I'm sure you've seen it in your own life. 
you're bold enough to share the good news, you'll see different responses. We're promised throughout the New Testament that that will be the case. Now, one example, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, I think summarizes it beautifully. Strikingly, he says, For we are to God a pleasing aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we're an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And what does that mean? Well, that means we shouldn't be surprised by the varying reactions that we get. We should share anticipating that God has prepared the hearts of some to respond, that there will be people who are wonderfully saved as they turn in repentance and faith to Christ. We should long for that. We should pray for that. We should continue to share and not be put off. There are going to be those who are attracted to the light of the gospel. And what that means is our testimony, our clear testimony is so important People need to hear it from us, how God has changed us radically, that it's made an incredible transformation in our own life, how important this message is to us as we share it with them so they might clearly see it and hear it. But secondly, we should not be surprised by some people rejecting it, not wanting to hear it. And we've got to count that cost as Christians. We've got to be ready for that, knowing that following Jesus... And sharing the good news is going to be hard work. And many of us have been saying, I guess in the last decade or so, we're ministering in an increasingly hostile world here in Australia and in many other places. And often that means that we become the object of ridicule or hostility for standing up for Jesus. But Jesus promised nothing less himself. It should not shock us. But the wonderful promise that Christ also gives us is that he is with us and he has overcome these difficulties. John 16, verse 33, is one verse that comforts and encourages us greatly in this regard. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What is it to have peace when we're surrounded by trouble so that we might continue to stand up for Christ and share the good news that we know is so crucial for people to hear? You know, on Christmas Eve of 1974, uh, Cyclone Tracy hit the city of Darwin in the Northern Territory. As cyclones go, it wasn't the biggest cyclone, but its effect was devastating because it hit the city straight on. And it did so after seemingly going around it and people thinking that they were safe. It's going to miss us, it's going to miss us, and then it turned and rammed the city head on. 71 people died in Cyclone Tracy, many because they were taken by surprise. Many were in denial. It was Christmas Eve. How could this happen right on Christmas? And it flattened the city. 70% of all buildings were flattened. 80% of all houses, 9,000 homes destroyed, $830 million damage. There were only 46,000 people that lived in Darwin at the time, and 41,000 of them were homeless. Eventually, 35,000 of them would evacuate, and many of those people never returned to Darwin. Up to 60% of the people there when it happened never came back. 
Bruce Stannard of The Age stated at the time that Cyclone Tracy was a disaster of the first magnitude. It is without parallel in Australian history. But what was true of Cyclone Tracy and what is true of every cyclone is that there's this eerie calm in the middle of a cyclone, of course. In the case of Tracy, um, this, the eye of the storm was 12 kilometres in diameter. 12 kilometres of very light winds, no rain, great calm. 40 kilometres beyond that of terrifying destruction. And of course, as it rages across any place, including Darwin, you get hit with the front edge and then the calm happens and so often people can be lulled into thinking it's over and then the second half of it hits as the eye moves across and the other side of the cyclone smashes again. But while you're in that centre, while their calm sits over a place, you're completely safe. Though the winds are raging all around in every direction, there is none in the eye of the storm. Now, I think Jesus is saying the same is true of a Christian in John 16. It's not that we won't face trials, that we won't face persecution for our faith, that we won't face rejection of the gospel and hostility at times. But even though we can be surrounded by the trouble and the chaos of this world, we should have a peace, a calm that only Christ can give us, a peace that passes all understanding. Now, the reason that that idea is not empty and just wishful thinking is because, as Jesus says in John 16, he has actually overcome the world. He's defeated the powers of this world, sin and the devil. That's why he could cry out from the cross, it is finished. That's why he could rise triumphantly on Easter Sunday and declare himself to be Lord of life. And so we have a hope. If you're a believer here tonight, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, you have a hope that can never be extinguished. And it won't matter what others think around about you, about you and your faith in Jesus, because you want to stand up for him with the knowledge that his power is with you and that you have a sure hope and a sure peace in him. And I've got to say, that's the consistent testimony of believers for the last 2,000 years, two millennium of people that have trusted in Jesus and found that in the midst of everything, in rejection and persecution, they will continue to share the good news because they have a peace that God has granted them through faith in Christ. A peace that only the Holy Spirit can produce in us as we continue to trust God in all of life. Now I say that knowing that it's hard. You know, we don't like the disapproval of people. We don't like rejection. I find it hard too. And I think we find it difficult because we know that we're clay pots. That's how Paul so flatteringly speaks of us in 2 Corinthians 4. You're just clay vessels that can be smashed. You're fragile. You're easily broken. But you hold within you a treasure that is so important, so powerful, it just has to come out. And that treasure is the gospel, this good news of a Christ child that has been born who has come to save. And he is for all people. He is a message of forgiveness for everyone who's turned away from God, a revelation for the Gentiles, a light for the nations. 
So I want to encourage you tonight. This is a great time of the year to be thinking about the opportunities to share, even if it's difficult. I don't know the situation in your family or with your close friends, but I do know that God's placed you right there. And the truth is we can often feel ill-equipped. We can feel fearful of rejection, but we have a hope that they need. Without it, they are lost and heading for a Christless eternity. And so we're the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. Never forget, you're a treasured possession of God and he can use you powerfully for the delivery of his good news to all those around you. Please pray with me that God might do that in us. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the good news of Jesus who was born, the promised Messiah who comes ultimately to lay down his life. He came on a rescue mission that he might bear our sin and win forgiveness for all those who have placed their trust in his atoning payment. Lord, we thank you for your great love in the sending of your Son, the revealing of your salvation plan in the giving of him, and that he is for not simply the Israelites, but for all people. Help us to see our part as your ambassadors if we've come to place our trust in him. Lord, help us to see the opportunities that are before us this time of the year. And even if our own opportunities are limited, help us to be prayerful for those who are on the front line, whether it's those serving in Beach Mission, whether it's those who are going out on short-term missions from among us to Cambodia or to Bangladesh. Lord, we have this great opportunity to be your representatives. Help us to take hold of it with courage, knowing that your spirit is at work in us and that it is your work to save and change people. But you call us to be faithful. Help us to be so we ask. In Christ's name, amen.